It's estimated that between 25 and 30 million Americans live with a rare disease. In the United States, a rare disease is defined as a condition that affects fewer than 200,000 people. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Dr. Melissa Wasserstein has devoted her life to identifying rare diseases in children. She's chief of pediatric genetic medicine at the Children's Hospital at Montefiore and professor of pediatrics and genetics at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Dr. Wasserstein is with me in the studio to talk about her efforts to solve medical mysteries for families and, when she can, connect them with resources to help them cope with the uncertainties of their child's future. Dr. Wasserstein, thanks so much for coming in. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So what's your background? How did you get involved in identifying rare diseases in children? Um, well, I'm a medical geneticist by training. So I, um, I spent the first few years after medical school studying pediatrics. And I was really drawn to diagnosing and taking care of children with very rare diseases that are potentially treatable. That's tough, though, to see kids who are sick like that. Yes, it's tough, but it's also very tough watching families struggling to get a diagnosis. Um, and it's also very gratifying to be able to offer them not only the diagnosis, but also potentially a treatment that might really help them. How routine is it that newborns are screened for rare diseases? Well, every single baby in the United States actually has a newborn screening test, um, usually right after 24 hours after birth. So um, they get a little prick in their heel and they squeeze out a tiny little bit of blood onto a piece of paper, and they send it to the newborn screening lab, and every baby gets tested for anywhere between 30 and 50-some-odd diseases, depending where they are in the country. In New York, every baby gets about 53 or 54 different diseases tested at birth. So it's state-dependent. State-dependent, yeah. Why is that, that it varies from state to state? It's just one of those state-mandated programs, um, largely dependent on their population, largely dependent on, of course, budget. What are among the diseases that newborns are tested for here in New York? Um, lots of very rare diseases that most people haven't heard of, but also more common diseases like um, sickle cell disease, for example, um, cystic fibrosis, um, low thyroid or hypothyroidism. Every baby also gets a hearing test when they're a newborn. But most of the diseases, the bulk of those 55 diseases, are very rare genetic disorders. How I... frequently are diseases added to the list of diseases that newborns are being tested for? Not frequently. It's, there's now a, a federal committee um, that determines if disorders should be added to state panels. Um, and that panel is called the, the RUSP, or the Recommended uniform screening panel. So, for example, if there is a family that was just diagnosed with a very rare disease, they might say, hey, we want to help other families by screening babies for this so that the babies can get diagnosed as early as possible. So they will try and advocate to get that disease added on to that RUSP. And if it is added on to the RUSP, then most states adopt it. What's an example of a disease that was recently added? Well, there's a few. One of them was um, X-linked adrenoleukodystrophy, or XALD. Um, which what is, is that? It's a very serious disease that affects mainly boys. Um, boys who have the serious form of it tend to be absolutely fine until they're maybe between three and seven years of age, at which point they start to get brain disease, and it really progresses very, very rapidly. And without treatment, most of them die in a few years. But if we pick them up at birth, 
and we know about it, we can actually treat them and prevent that from happening. So that's why we screen for that. I understand that Hurler syndrome is also among the newest disorders to be tested for. Yes, MPS1 or Hurler syndrome was added on probably two to three years ago. And that's also a disorder that's very rare. Most people haven't heard of it, but children who have it can get very sick. They can have brain disease and heart disease and liver disease. And without treatment, most of them do die early. But there is treatment for it that's approved, FDA approved. So it's one of, also one of those that early detection can really make a huge difference in the lives of those families. Do we only test for diseases that are treatable? In general, yes. That's the goal. That's the gold standard. Um, there's always some diseases where there are forms of disease that we don't really understand very much. Sometimes there's a very serious form that we know is treatable. There might be a milder form of the disease that might not be as treatable or vice versa. And sometimes we pick them both up by newborn screening. So often we learn as we go. How accurate is the testing? It's a screening test. It's not a diagnostic test. It's a screening test. And the difference is that screening tests have a very low bar. They don't want to miss anybody. So most screening tests have a cutoff that means that we will have false positives. So we often will get a result. We'll call the family and, and tell them there's a really good chance that this is not real. It's just a false positive. But we set it this way because we don't want to take the chance of missing somebody. Can families opt out of having their newborn screened? Um, we always, we never want anybody to opt out. Families can opt out often for religious reasons, but it's really, really strongly discouraged because it's, it's a tiny heel prick test, life-saving. Now, you were recently awarded a more than $3 million grant from the National Institutes of Health to conduct a major pilot screening program for rare diseases in newborns. Yeah. Tell us what's going to go into that program. That's very exciting. So... When we add new diseases onto newborn screening panels, there's, like I mentioned before, there's just a lot that we need to learn. So I was thinking maybe we should approach it kind of as a research study where we offer the screen, but we collect information so that we know what is the cutoff? What should it be? What's the accuracy of the screening test? How many babies are we picking up in an ethnically diverse population? What are the ethics behind newborn screening for certain disorders? So that's what it's about. We're adding on 13 disorders. Babies born at certain hospitals that are participating, the parents can opt in. They'll be consented. They'll understand it. They'll be taught about it. They can choose if they want to participate. And if they do, their baby will have the 50-some-odd diseases already and then an additional 13 disorders. And if the baby screens positive for one of those 13 disorders, they'll be called back. We'll evaluate the baby, we'll treat the baby as needed, and then we'll learn about the disease as we go to see if newborn screening actually is beneficial for it. How did you decide upon the 13 disorders? Well, we had criteria that we created for those 13 disorders. Um, and among those criteria are, first of all, that there is a newborn screening test that we know works, that we've evaluated already in the lab. We also have chosen disorders that either have treatment that's approved or for which there is a clinical trial that we can get the babies into. So if we do diagnose somebody with it, I want to be able to offer them something. And we also have diseases that have a pediatric form of the disease, because there's many genetic diseases that don't impact people until they're adults. We're not screening for those. We're just doing ones that have a baby, a baby or childhood form of it. 
to catch it as quick as possible, mm-hmm. to treat it as quick as possible. If they need treatment. Some of them might not need treatment for a while, but we want them to know that you know, sometimes if you have a very rare disease, you go through years and years of trying to come up with a diagnosis, but this way they'll know what it is. They won't spend all this time on what we call the diagnostic odyssey. They'll know what it is, and at the first sign that they need treatment, we'll be able to offer it. What are among the 13 diseases on that list? Um, okay. All with big names? All with very big names. <laughs> <laughs> very, very big names. Um, so we have um, Neiman Pick disease type C, Neiman Pick disease types A and B. We have a form of Batten disease. We have lysosomal acid lipase deficiency. Cerebrotendinous which is a doozy or CTX. We have five diseases that are related to hurlers. They're called other. They're called the MPS disorders. We mentioned hurlers before, which is MPS one. We have we have MPS three A, four B, two, six, and seven. So let's talk about the ethics of newborn screening. Why screen a child for a disease that might not service until adulthood? For instance, you said that this new screening will not involve that, but why do that? Well, so. There were, like I said, many genetic diseases have severe forms and milder forms, and the newborn screen itself, the test, can't really differentiate. So when we're aiming to screen children for or babies for diseases that are pediatric, we might actually inadvertently pick up diseases that don't manifest until adulthood. And some people think that that is absolutely the right thing to do. If you have a genetic disease, you should know about it, and you should be proactive and be able to take care and see who you need to see and go to the right doctors. But some people think maybe it's an invasion of privacy because maybe, you know, as an adult, you wouldn't want to know. You would want to live your life without knowing this information and just, you know, take it day by day. So there It could are really wear on you to think, when will this thing manifest itself? Yes. And on the other hand, it could also wear on you to have symptoms that you don't know why you're having them and not understand them and be living in an area without necessarily a big academic medical center who can give the diagnosis to you. So I don't know what the right answer is. I think people all have opinions. If we had 10 people in the room, we would have 10 opinions about that. So that's one fun part of Screen Plus, which is the name of the study, is that we are asking every parent who participates if they want to also participate in our ethics survey. And we're going to be querying them about things like this. So it won't be decisions made by ethicists or healthcare professionals, but by the people who really count, who are actually the parents. What other types of questions will you be asking them? We're working on developing them now, but some of those questions involve matters of um, consenting. Do you think you should always have to approve to, you know, agree to do testing like newborn screening? Are there cutoffs, uh, there age-specific diseases that we should be screening for and not others? Should we be screening for diseases that might not be treatable, but you might want to know about? Should we be screening for diseases that might not have a treatment, but maybe if you change your diet or change your lifestyle, it can improve your health. Would you want to know that information? And again, ask 10 people, we'll have 10 answers. But we're going to hopefully get tens of thousands of answers from people who are invested and who have newborns and who can help us. It'll be pretty interesting, I think, to see that. Is newborn screening covered by insurance? It's actually, um, depending on what state you're in, is either covered by insurance or it's free. In New York, it's actually free. It's not charged. It's one of the few states where it's just paid for by the state budget. So it's a free test. And then if the baby is has a positive screen, then it would be covered by insurance, the, the subsequent medical care that's needed. 
How challenging is it? We mentioned this at the top. How challenging is it from a parent's perspective to try to get answers about rare diseases in babies? For certain rare diseases, we've actually asked parents. We've kind of taken some interviews and spoken with them about how long it took from when their child first had symptoms that they were worried about until they were actually given a diagnosis. And for some rare diseases, for example, Neiman Pick, it might take six, seven years to get a diagnosis. And and there's something there. They know that there's something off with the child and the child is sick, but they can't get a diagnosis until somebody finally thinks about it. And that's one of the real big benefits of newborn screening. You know, most people are going to have absolutely normal results. But for those few who do have something to avoid those seven years and get the child the help that they need without waiting seven years, that's the big benefit of newborn screening. How rare are many of these rare diseases? One in what would you say? Well, for the disorders on Screen Plus, on the pilot newborn screen that I'm doing, it ranges probably from about one in 100,000 to maybe one in 300 or 400,000. So we might not even pick anybody up. But we don't know because a lot of that data is from populations that, you know, might just be, you know, an area in Northern Ireland, which is clearly not reflective of our New York population. So the numbers in New York might be completely different. Um, So that's one of the big points of the screen is that, guess what, we're American, we need everybody here, we need to get everybody's data so that we can learn what the incidences of these rare diseases in a Puerto Rican population or in an African American population or in a Caribbean population. It might be completely different, but all the babies need the help. So let's learn about it. Do families at least sometimes have an inkling because great-great-grandpa had something or great-great-grandma had something? Usually not. Hmm. Usually not. So most of the disorders are what we call autosomal recessive. And that means that they need to inherit a copy of the abnormal gene from mom and a copy of the abnormal gene from dad. Neither mom nor dad have any symptoms Hmm. because mom and dad each have also have a healthy copy. So usually it is... you know, out of thin air that this thing came out and everybody's heard of it before. They kind of don't believe it because it hasn't been in the family. It hasn't been seen in in great uncle or great aunt. Nobody's had it before, but that doesn't mean that the baby doesn't have it. What have been among the biggest breakthroughs in dealing with rare diseases in children over the years, would you say? Oh, the treatment has been tremendously changed. I've been doing this for about 20 years now. Um, The treatment is exponentially better year after year. It's incredible the kinds of treatments that are available now, different kinds of genetic changes that we can we can treat, um, changing the DNA and improving things in a way that even even five years ago I wouldn't have thought were possible. So it really makes a massive difference to know, make sure you know what the disease is, and then to have access to the treatment that you might need. Dr. Wasserstein, thank you so much for coming in. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Melissa Wasserstein is Chief of Pediatric Genetic Medicine at the Children's Hospital at Montefiore and Professor of Pediatrics and Genetics at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. The challenges of having a child with a rare disease are all too familiar for Bronx resident Jessica Klein-Folio. Her son, Ben, has something called Sala disease. We'll get into exactly what that is in a moment. Jessica is a Juilliard-trained opera singer who hit pause in her career to take care of her son and create the Sala Treatment and Research Foundation. 
Foundation. The aforementioned Dr. Melissa Wasserstein leads the Foundation's Scientific Advisory Board, along with Dr. Stephen Walkley, director of the Rose F. Kennedy Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities Research Center at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Jessica joins me now in the studio to talk about their efforts to get a better understanding of Sala and how to develop treatments that could change the course of the disease. Jessica, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So tell me about Ben. Ben is, um, he's four years old, and he's got fire red hair and um, just a great personality. He um, he has a really rare disease called Sala disease that is, I mean, I always joke when the fairest of them all had the rarest of them all. <laughs> but um, he has, his personality, it just beams, and he wants to make people happy. And he loves to say, I'm Ben. Hi, I'm Ben. But he is unable to walk, and um, speaking is very difficult for him. So what is Sala disease specifically? So Sala disease is a lysosomal storage disorder. And um, our cells have a job, and the lysosome within the cell, and we're always recycling um, we're recycling amino acids and cholesterols and sialic acids. We're just... That's the beauty of our body is it's just able to recycle all of these things. But Ben is unable to recycle something called sialic acids. And it's building up in his cell, and over time it will poison him. So Ben is one of only about 12 people in the United States to have this disease? That's how rare it is, yes. Wow. Well, and and we were originally given the diagnosis of cerebral palsy. And I'm an educated woman. I went to the Juilliard School. I sang all over. And I... I I just went through my life thinking it was cerebral palsy until one day a friend of mine who happens to be a, a doctor, she said, Jessica, will you just go down the road of genetics? And I thought, okay. But here um, we were diagnosed with this ultra-orphan rare disease. And so how many people right now are out there thinking that they have cerebral palsy? Or there's another new case. Um, he thought he had leukodystrophy, and actually it is solid disease. So um, there's a new test out called whole exome sequencing, um, WES, and it was a $20,000 test back in 2016 and 2017, and now it's becoming more and more of a well-received, well-known test to really pinpoint what is wrong with a child. So this is not a disease that newborns are tested for? No, not currently, no. Should it be? (sighs) Yes. Is it treatable? No. Oh, gosh. There's never been any any study on it at all. We are when I get when I get families together, I or when I I say we are the pioneers, we're the pioneers of science and we are the pioneers and our children are going to forge the way for future generations. And as painful as that is, then at least it gives you a purpose amidst your diagnosis. So, um, you know, families who have just been so lost for so long, finally, we have. Um, Solid Treatment and Research Star Foundation. We're going to talk more about that foundation, but I want to know how soon after Ben was born did you start to know that something was not right? I I felt something not right in utero, actually. Really? He wasn't kicking the right way. He was very quick, and he's still quick to do this. He's quick to startle. His startle reflex is just so amplified. And in the womb, he would just startle. And he wouldn't move the way that my first son would move. And, you know, but I I was like, well, it's just a different kid. It's a different human in there. So, um, but really outside of the womb, uh, six months, he missed his milestones. He couldn't sit up. He couldn't chew. He couldn't swallow. So, um, 
He still can't walk. He's in a wheelchair now. Um, and we had him in therapy 30 times a week. Mm. 30 times a week. I, I quit I quit my job. I quit singing to get him into You're an opera therapies. singer. Yeah, yeah. So I sang in uh, Lincoln Center with New York City Opera, um, Seattle Opera, uh, the New York Philharmonic, um, the Castleton Festival um, throughout Germany, and Philadelphia Orchestra. So he's four now, but what was the time frame between the time that you thought he had cerebral palsy yes. to finding out that he has Sala disease? Mm-hmm. A year and a half. What was that year and a half like for you? Um, with cerebral palsy, usually kids, through all the therapies I was doing, I was doing so many therapies, usually kids start to get better or their symptoms are lessened because of all the therapies and the early intervention. And I was just so frustrated because his progress was so slow. And our birth was, you know, cerebral palsy is a lack of oxygen when you're born. So our birth was a C-section. There was no reason for him to have cerebral palsy. So I was still questioning, how can this be CP? Um, I was doing all of the therapies and his progress was just slow. Um, So it was just a confusing time. Um, it was a whirlwind time because not only do you lose the hope of your of your job and what you did, and I mean, I went to Juilliard. I worked so hard to perfect my craft. So then I lost, I lost the hope of my career, and then you, toppled with your you've lost the hope of a child mm-hmm. and what that child could be. It was just a blur, really. Where did you go to get this diagnosis, considering it's so? rare. Right. So um, my friend, again, if I if I go back to her, who was the doctor, she had a friend who was a the lead geneticist at Hackensack University in New Jersey. And I went to go see him and he took urine sample of Ben. And this is where I don't under, maybe the doctors would uh, explain it in a more clear fashion. But they just took urine samples and those urine samples, because he piles up so much sialic acid in his body, um, those urine samples had high levels of sialic acid in them, and that triggered him to say, hmm, I think that this is this disease. But being that it was New Jersey and we lived in New York, our insurance wouldn't pay, or they referred us then to Columbia, and Columbia proceeded with this test. And Columbia wanted it on their record that they had diagnosed solid disease, so they gave us this test. And uh, and my husband and I gave our blood, and we Ben's blood, and it took about six months for the results to come back. Have you heard of anyone else in your family ever having this disease? There is. Um, my uncle did Ancestry.com, or Ancestry, and he, he opted to do the higher, oh, the higher setting of Ancestry, right? So there's different levels, I should say levels. So he opted to do the highest level, and it came back you are a carrier of solid disease. Wow. And so we didn't know which side of the family it came from. Mm-hmm. And he called me and he goes, it's, it's me, I have it. And he goes, Jess, if I, if I look back on my life, he goes, we had a cousin who couldn't walk mm. or talk. It's likely that this, was this, this is what he had. So how do you go from being a mom doing all she can to care for her son yeah. to being an activist? Right. So... About the time that we got the um, the, the the diagnosis, um, Dr. Wasserstein and Dr. Walkley were starting something called the IDD gene team, where it would link rare diseases like ours with geneticists who know something about the disease from around the world. 
So, uh, you know, Colombia is 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 thankful as I am for their diagnosis and um, and the correct diagnosis. It was the aftercare that made a lot of difference to us. And, you know, some some places say, oh, good luck with your diagnosis. We'll see you every year. But I wanted to do something about it. So Dr. Walkley and Wasserstein, um, again, it was intervention of a friend who put us um, put us in touch. And uh, we had a meeting and they said, this is this is what solid disease is. Here is a whole write up of what it is. And I'm crying. And they said, what did you do for a living before this? And I said, I went to Juilliard. And they looked at each other and they said, we actually think that you would be fantastic to start a rare disease foundation. And I told them to kick rocks. I said, no way. Uh-uh, I'm not doing a rare disease. What? I went to Juilliard. What do I know about science? And they said, no, use your friends to do concerts. So I I do have a friend who's won six Grammy, sorry, John, maybe seven now for mm-hmm. jazz. His name is John Patitucci. And um, he right away said, I will do concerts. So we've done a concert in Bethesda, and we have done one in New York City um, at the Riverdale Yacht Club, and we have raised so much money. I have friends now in Lincoln Center who are willing um, to do to do concerts now. Um, my friend Janai Orman is singing uh, and Porgy and Bess at the Met. Um, Renee Tatum, Wendy Bryn Harmer. So w- we just we're only a year old, so we've been using John Patitucci, but now we are going to use my connections from op- the opera world. You don't realize what your life, why you're put in certain situations. And why did I go to Juilliard to ultimately have a son with a rare disease? Like, I don't understand. Why Why did I have that opportunity? And why did I have a singing career? But then you realize it's all for the greater good. You, I can now use my friends and my connections to benefit rare disease children. So, What's the mission of the organization? What are you going to do with this money that you're bringing in? Right. So we have now, uh, we really started full force September of last year. And since then, we have raised over $200,000, probably about after the Giving Tuesday campaign, um, two twenty five. We have hired a technician to work on um, this disease at the National Institutes of Health. And we have now extended her contract until May of 2021. And we have um, we have reserves. So um I don't get paid to do this. I just do it um, because I want I want to make a difference in this disease. And so now we have um, we have extra money that we are going to now allow for families to apply for scholarships. So maybe they want to attend the World Symposium of rare diseases and meet our doctors. Maybe they need a wheelchair that they can't afford the deductible on. Um, maybe they want to meet another family, or maybe they want to go to the Global Genes event. So now families. Um, we're about to implement this. Families can now apply for a scholarship um, to do these things that they want to do or afford the um, equipment that they can't afford um, or a, even a therapy that's maybe a private therapist that they really want to see that they think could really intervene for their child. How well do you know other families? And there are only a small number of them in this country. How well do you know others who are dealing with this? Very well. Yeah. So, you know, it's hard to believe it's almost archaic um, when we got our diagnosis, we went to go Google it, crying, 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 and nothing came up. We were just listed as other in the world of rare diseases. And and Dr. Wasserstein and Dr. Walkley had to call another doctor out of North Dakota, because there was a family there, South Dakota, excuse me. And um, we had 
they had to make sure that it was okay to put us in touch. And it just seems like in the world of Facebook and Twitter and social media, how is this, how is this really possible? So we um, now we have started this foundation, and I'm telling you, people in people had really mixed feelings about it because it's going to be a job that we're all going to have to do as families that we might not see the fruits of the labor, you know, and. Um, but now we're we are on we have we have three different Facebook sites we have Twitter we have Instagram and we are reaching families in Europe and they're finally coming around yes they're actually doing this and every check that I write to the NIH I, I post you know I I cover the numbers so people can't steal or anything but I post it because I want people to know we are really doing this we are really forwarding the research and we I talk to Norway families from Norway almost every day Switzerland. All over the world. So now I've probably united 200 families. Yeah, so only about 12 in the United States, but how many worldwide would you say have? Um, 250. Solo. Okay. And then you have to take into account the language barrier. And um, I don't want to go against what Dr. Wasserstein says, but I would say there, there's probably more like 18 or 20 now. Okay. But see, she relies on me because I, I know the families. The families actually come to me, and I have to tell her of new families that I hear of, you know. How challenging is it for you to be running a foundation that has such a small population that you are serving, if you will, 200 families mm-hmm. worldwide, and you go out to donors and you say, you know what, there are 250 people who are dealing with this, help us. Is that part of a challenge, would you oh, say? Oh, yes, yeah. absolutely. You know, and, and um, I have an unwavering belief that no disease is too rare to be researched. So, um, solidresearch.org. All right, Jessica, thank you so much for thank coming in. Thank you so in. much for having me. Thank you. Jessica Kleinfolio is the founder of the Sala Treatment and Research Foundation. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Maddie Bristow. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. If you liked this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to Cityscape on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen to Cityscape on Spotify, Google Play, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at WFUV Cityscape to stay up to date between episodes. Thanks so much for listening.